We're going to look at a, a topic this morning about the word holy. And uh, obviously it's, it's in the scriptures hundreds of times, so you, there's no way we'll cover everything that's, or every usage of it. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, well, I'll get to that in a minute. So, the word holy uh, in, in the Old Testament, Kodesh, and it, it means pretty much what you think it means, as we've always heard. It means to something that's been set apart or something that's uh, distinct from that which is profane or common. So if you think back to how God called Abraham out of Mesopotamia and established Israel as a nation and God gave Israel some laws that would set them apart and make them distinct from all the rest of the nations of, of the earth. And there, so there was a purpose behind that. Um, Jesenius in his uh, Hebrew Chaldean lexicon said it this way. He says it means to be pure, clean, free from defilement of crimes. Of course, and he doesn't mean like robbery, you know, he's talking about offenses against God. Uh, idolatry and other unclean or profane things. And then, of course, Strong says pretty much the same thing, only it's very brief, sacred, holy, set apart. Uh, and, you know, the, the implication, when you think about that, it implies there's a differentiation between that which is set apart and everything else. So I want us to look at a few things this morning in regards to that because uh, uh, it has implications for you and I uh, in our Christian life and our walk with the Lord. Now, the word holy, as we said, can apply to several different things. Um, it can even apply to uh, material things. A lot of times it's to the temple. It's a holy, and, and you know, then not only the temple, but inside the temple, you have the holy place, and then you have the most holy place. Sometime back, we walked through the progression that takes place when an Israelite would make an offering to the Lord, how they could only come into the temple courts area so far. This I'm talking, speaking here about with the tabernacle, but same thing would have been true with Solomon's temple. And, and there was a progression. And finally, it was only the high priest who could go into the most holy place. And that was even only once a year. So there are different degrees or levels of sacredness, but each one was set apart. It was a holy thing for that individual. So, for instance, a, an ordinary citizen of Israel could only come in uh, to bring his sacrifice only as far as the, uh, the, the uh, not the labor, but the other one, barbecue pit. I can't think why. <laughs> Help me out. What is this, the, you know, the fire thing? Nobody else knows either, do you? I can't. <laughs> Yeah, the altar, the altar where they made the burnt offering. Yeah, I, that's what I want to say. The altar. I couldn't get, couldn't just couldn't find it out there, and it was in there somewhere, floating around. So uh, my point of it is, is that you know he, they could only come so far. But the the, the high priest 
No, he could, he could go all the way into the temple, but the ordinary citizen of Israel couldn't do that. So, the, um, the whole nation of Israel is said to be holy. As they, we stated earlier, they were set apart from all the rest of the nations of, uh, of the earth. And that's what it really meant, that they were holy. They were set apart. They were just different from every other nation. Deuteronomy 14, 2, he says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So they were to be different. Yahweh is another reference here, said to be the Holy One about 40 times. And especially in, in Isaiah, I couldn't believe how many times he talked about the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, over and over. Um, in Isaiah 17, 7, I'll just pick one verse here. He says, in that day, man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. Ezekiel said, in my holy name, I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. So we see that distinction again. Um, and again in 2 Kings 19, he says, Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. So you have material things like the temple or the sanctuary you have people the nation you have the Lord God himself who are all declared to be holy and when we discuss the uh, supernatural world and you think about uh, Yahweh himself as a participant in that world we mentioned also that there are many other heavenly creatures heavenly beings uh, called in the scriptures sons of God uh, evil spirits and demons that occupy the supernatural world um, dead men dead people are called Elohim members of the supernatural world but when it comes to Yahweh he is said to be holy distinct and separate from, from all the rest of the unseen world not just here in our world and in the world of flesh and blood and bones. Uh, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, he says there, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy. So it was possible to have a, a day that was set apart to be a holy day. Well, you know that Israel had many different festivals and they were considered holy. In this particular instance, Ezra, as they, had, you know, the exiles had come back and they were rebuilding the temple and the walls around the, the, uh, Jerusalem and uh, they had designated this as a holy day. Why? Well, he goes on to say, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep says there he taught the people for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law 
It was a day that was distinctly set aside for the reading of the Word of God. And it was called a holy day, a set-apart day. Um, in connection with that then, and you have to tie some things together, you have repeatedly, in the Psalms especially, that one who was called upright in heart. Now, you, you see the word righteous also. Many Israelites who walked blamelessly were said to be righteous. But then they add this, like an addendum onto that, and who were upright in heart. And a word, the word just simply means straight. You want to look at the very literal meaning of the word. And so it has to do with a person who walks straight. When God says don't vary to the right or to the left, he was talking about the upright in heart who would walk straight. That is to say, they were obedient to the law. But it wasn't just that they were outwardly obedient to the law. The heart was involved. Their heart was towards Yahweh and acknowledging him as supreme, as the highest, as the most high. And they were to worship him only. Now, Having said that, Psalm uh, Psalm 111, verse 1. It's a good verse to turn to if you want to turn there. Psalm 111 and verse 1. And I, I, I really thought this was an interesting, an interesting verse in Psalm 111. <laughs> he says there, uh, praise the Lord or praise Yahweh. I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart in the company of the upright and in the congregation. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of who? You see, he's making a distinction here. The upright and or in the congregation. And a lot of folks see two different groups here. And I like, I was looking at Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's commentary, and I like what they said concerning this term, upright, in this passage. He says, it means a title of the true Israel. When I saw that, it reminded me that's exactly where we were for about three weeks before the conference. We heard a message during the conference on this very topic and I came across this verse here and I had I, I, I you know, obviously I read through the scriptures several times many times uh, but didn't realize what the implication was here concerning the upright in heart here that they they were the true Israel and as we discovered repeatedly throughout the New Testament or Old Testament as well as in the New Testament God makes a distinction between those who are truly his those who are the righteous or the upright just like we acknowledged in um, uh, in Luke with Zechariah and Elizabeth where it says they were blameless in all the law righteous before the Lord and there were many Israelites this way. 
Not the whole nation, though. That's why God, that's why they, you know, they went off into idolatry, and that's why God sent them off into exile. They weren't walking with God. Poor old Elijah thought he was the last one that was a true Israelite until God reminded him, I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal yet. But the rest of Israel had. They had caved in. And so that's the, that's the general direction. That's the theme where we want to head here this morning is to understand and know that there is a distinction in Scripture for those uh, who are what, what, well, what Paul calls a true Israelite, the true Israel, the Israel of God. Not everybody can claim that. Now, you, you know, Jews can claim that as a physical descendant of Abraham. But, you know, it's just like, um, remember Lyndall Dillon? He, he likes to talk about the, the secondary and the tertiary and, the, and then the, the quad-somethingary, you know, levels of Scripture and looking at, the, you know, the different meanings. Well, there's another level of meaning here with Abraham. It's more than just being the physical seed of Abraham, his descendant. But it was those who had the faith of Abraham who were the true seed and the true descendants. In Psalm 32, the psalmist there says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I, you know, I don't know where the fine line comes between the righteous and the upright in heart. But God makes a distinction, and it's, it's multiple times throughout the psalms. If you look for it. Psalm 33, he says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Now I'm reading from the ESV here. Turn to Psalm 34, if you would. Psalm 34. <clears throat> It's an interesting psalm because uh, you know it's David is focusing on one's spiritual relationship to Yahweh, and throughout this psalm, you see several things here about the benefits of those who seek the Lord, and we know what the Scripture says repeatedly about the necessity. Not, not just a, a choice, but a necessity of seeking the Lord. Hebrews 11 speaks to that. So as you see in verse 2, now again I'm reading from the ESV, so I don't know how yours is going to read, but he says, let the humble hear. So you, you have this idea of humility connected. Verse 4, he says, I sought Yahweh. Verse 5 says, he's appealing to them, look to him. Verse 8, he says, taste and see, take refuge. Verse 10, he says, concerning those who seek the Lord. In verse 17, he says, the righteous cry for help. And then verse 22, he repeats it again, take refuge in him. You know, did you, you, you see the, the all in those phrases that I'm using, the thrust is towards seeking Yahweh, connecting with him. But then he goes on to say, in several passages, we're going to look at these, what are the results then of seeking the Lord? And he tells us here, verse 4, he says, he delivers us from all fears. 
Verse 5, he says, you, you seek the Lord and you'll never be ashamed. Verse 6, he'll save you out of all your troubles. Verse 7, he delivers those who encamp around Yahweh. And that word encamp literally means you pitch your tent around Yahweh. This is, a, this is the place you want to settle down next to Yahweh. Verse 9, he says, you'll have no lack. Verse 17, he says, now I'm talking about David, says, he hears our cry for help. Verse 18, he is near to the brokenhearted. And he also saves or rescues the crushed in spirit. And I forget what the King James word is there, but the literal meaning of it is crushed in spirit. You're, you know, when you're beat down and you feel like you're at your lowest point and emotionally you just feel like you cannot get up and go. He says, you turn to the Lord, you turn to Yahweh and you genuinely seek him. It says there, he will rescue those who are crushed in spirit. Verse 19, he delivers from all afflictions. And several translations used other words like adversities, uh, troubles, evils, misfortunes, and so on. Verse 22, he says one of those benefits is if you do, no condemnation. God will not declare you guilty. But you remember... And do, uh, I can't remember where the chapter right off hand, but it says that uh, God will by no means clear the guilty. But if you follow the prescription that David has given us to seek the Lord, he says, there will be no condemnation for you. God will not find you guilty. Now, very briefly, he talks about contrast with the wicked. What about them? Well, in verse 16, he says, Yahweh's face is against those who do evil. What a deplorable state to be in, to know that Yahweh has turned his face away from you because of wickedness. And of course, you could, you could go back to these things here that we've talked about previously and just look at the opposite of what what. <laughs> you know what takes place and there are, I was looking at a sheet of paper here somebody put on my desk I mean it listed I mean it was like page and a half or two pages a list this long of all different kinds of words in the scriptures that relate to our ability to practice or do evil wickedness like lies cheating and so on. And then in verse 21, look what he says there. Affliction will cause the wicked to die. He says, affliction will slay the wicked. You know, if they don't turn to Yahweh, if they don't turn back to the Lord, in the midst of those afflictions and you just let them go then the ultimate thing is death whether that means physical death which i think it can very very easily 
or it could be death in the sense of loss of what God would benefit you with had you did honor him and turn to him and worship him. And then he says here, they are, they are condemned. Notice in verse 21, those who hate righteousness will be condemned. That's just the opposite. They will be found guilty. And of course, ultimately pay the, pay the price for that. So he urges them to take refuge in Yahweh, to flee to him for, for, for protection. And the holy ones and the righteous ones are the ones David is seeking to encourage in this passage. It wasn't everybody in Israel. Now, I think, would David have been delighted if everybody would have turned to the Lord? Well, of course. But he's making a specific and special appeal to the righteous ones, to the ones upright in heart, to continue on, to stay with Yahweh. Don't, don't give up, in other words. Now, in Psalm 36.10, he says, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. That's what the psalmist is proclaiming. Oh, continue your steadfast love. He's, ma he's, make he's making, making it turn from us. Stay with us. That is to the righteous. And to the upright in heart. Psalm 6410, let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. Psalm 125, do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. I told you there was a mess up. I just gave you just a handful uh, of passages that speak of this. Psalm, or excuse me, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 32. He says, the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. Now there's a little transition that's going to take place here uh, with this word confidence, and I want you to see the progression of this, what it means to be upright in heart, what it means to have that, I'll call it peculiar relationship with Yahweh that not everybody in Israel had. And even so today, not all of us have. The word confidence there means he is intimate with them. So you think about that when you enter into prayer. When you get on your knees and you're bowed before the Lord, and you're acknowledging him for who he is, creator, redeemer, deliverer, who he rescues us. When you acknowledge him for who he is, then you are in a secret place with him. Not, by the way, is what definition in, in the lexicon will tell you. It means in secret. Matter of fact, it's translated that way most of the time in the King James. This, it'll say something like the secret of the Lord. But the implication is, is the secret intimacy, the secret counsel of the Lord. There's a special place to go and be near to God. 
As a matter of fact, the word secret, you know, it, it literally means an assembly or a meeting that's held in intimacy. That's why they use the word secret, because not everybody gets to, I want to say, get off the printed page and enjoy that relationship with the Lord that everybody can read in the Bible. I mean, the printed words are there. Everybody can read that. But he's talking about something that, I don't know how to describe it, off the page, where you can meet with him. Psalm 25 and verse 14 says, the friendship of the Lord. That's the way it was translated here. But it's, it's, it's the secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him and notice this and he makes known to them his covenant now i don't know exactly what all that implies like i said anybody can read the old testament and read about the covenant that god made with uh abraham with david but there's another level a deeper level or I like to think of it as something higher, a higher level than just the profane or the ordinary or the common prayer. Matter of fact, in that, in that verse in Psalm 25, 14, uh, the Lexham English Bible or, uh, yes, translates it as intimate friendship with Yahweh. The NIV says the Lord confides in those who fear him. I mean, can you imagine that special relationship where the Lord would do something in your heart that he's not going to do for everybody else because you sought him, because you wanted to be near to him, because you wanted to take delight in him, but you got to meet him in the secret place. The Christ, uh, Holman's Christian Standard says this, it calls it the secret counsel of the Lord. The ISV calls it the intimate counsel. Uh, the New English Translation calls it the Lord's loyal followers. That's who meets with him in the secret place. His loyal followers. And it says they receive his guidance. So when you, you know, when you pray and you're asking the Lord to, you know, God, help me, da, 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 show me the way. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I've got this illness. I don't know what to do. Or there's this relationship in our family and I'm stuck and I don't know what to do. Guide me, Lord. Well, if you wanted to guide you, in other words, you need to get into the secret place. You need to meet with him in intimacy where he will confide those things to you. That's what takes place there. <clears throat> In Psalm 55, David is talking here about a, another situation where um, as the worshipers would travel to you know, the temple, or in David's day, of course, it would have been the tabernacle, for worship, to meet with Yahweh. And it says there that as he was going on the way, he had an intimate friend. 
And he said, we would take sweet counsel together. We would share secrets with one another. We would share the private things that we don't talk about this to everybody else. But then if you read the rest of the psalm, you'll see that that special friend fell away from David and turned against him. In Psalm 55, well, the same Psalm, verse 14, he said, there we would share personal thoughts with each other. That's the next translation. Now I want us to turn to Daniel chapter 7, verse 11. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 11. little bit lengthy here, but we're going to speed our way through it. Hmm. Beginning in verse 11, Daniel says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the, that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So we take note and we see those words son of man. And we know who that is, the Lord Jesus. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And then the rest of that, Next verse says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. All right, so we're focusing on just really one key aspect here. And that's the Lord Jesus, and he received the kingdom. Continue reading, verse 15. Daniel says, my spirit within me was anxious. He was perplexed over what in the world all this meant. And he says, the visions in my head alarmed me. And so I approached one of those who stood there, and I asked him the truth concerning all this. And so he told me, so get ready, because we're about to get the truth here. He says, um, he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High, oh, the saints of the Most High. Literally, the Holy Ones. The Holy Ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. Well, just told us up here the Son of Man was going to receive the kingdom. Now the holy ones are going to receive the kingdom. He didn't say all Israel shall receive the kingdom or all the nations of the earth will receive the kingdom. It's just the holy ones. The set-apart ones. Those who are upright in heart. Those who practice righteousness and doing right. 
And he says they'll possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Verse 19, he says, Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the rest. And he goes on to describe that for him. And you can look down to um, verse 21. He says, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints, the holy ones, and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints or the holy ones of the Most High. And the time came when the holy ones possessed the kingdom. Who gets to rule and reign with Jesus? Who is going to possess the kingdom along with him? Well, he tells us here in very easy, plain language, the holy ones. You see, if you read the word saints, I know you we've got it fixed in our brain. We just think Christian, believer. It's way more than that. A real saint is the one who is seeking the Lord, as David urged us to do back in Psalm 34. And so in verse, verse 23, he says, as for the fourth beast, and he goes on to describe that fourth beast and what was going to happen with it, you come down to verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High, and notice what he says, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, the Holy Ones. In other words, there's going to be war. It's a battle. And shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom, verse 27, and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints or the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. It's quite a distinction a separateness made there with respect to what we just said concerning that which is holy, that which appeals to Yahweh. It certainly doesn't appeal to falsehood. Now, what does that mean for you and I? Well, obviously, we don't have time to go to the New Testament, but we know the same message continues on for members of the church. It's no different. God demands of us a holy life. Do you know what else Jesus told his disciples? And I really like this. When you think about those saints of the Most High spoken of there in Daniel, he told them, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He didn't say give Israel the kingdom, but to give you a little flock. It's a small number. It's not humongous big throngs who will share it, share in that ultimate rule. And so what I'm trying to show here is that the saints of the Most High and the little flock who 
the Father takes joy in giving them the kingdom are the same people. They're no different. The message of holiness, godliness, and by the way, some of those places I didn't even look, I didn't even go there. Some of them translated the godly. Demands, not suggests, demands a holy life. And the way to get there, the way to acquire that, is to do what David said back there in Psalm 34. Seek him. Take refuge in him. Fear him. And all the rest of those things that, that David mentioned. And when you do that, then God will allow you in to that secret place of intimacy with him. I, I would for many, many years as a believer not doing that. Now I prayed and I read my Bible. I wanted to have a walk with the Lord in a relationship to Him. But I really didn't understand what all that was about until one day I began to realize, boy, there's something else going on here. And, and really... I wasn't that smart to figure it all out. It was just the Lord in his grace and mercy began to do things and show me things and reveal things. When I sought him out and sought to become intimate with him. And that's where I'm urging you today. If you haven't arrived there yet, if you've not ever experienced that, then you need to do it. It will transform your life as a Christian. It will allow you to walk at a different level and not just go along with the mundane. And, well, I'm out of time, so I can't do this. This is, this is what the Lord wants. This is what he desires from us. And if he desires it from us, you know, we, you need to know, we need to know, and I, I don't say you, we need to know that when God made us, he didn't just make us for fun. He made you because he wants you. He wants fellowship with you. He wants you to come to him. The problem is we have in churches today, I and mean, with Christianity is, they want to come to God, but they want to come on their own terms. God spells his terms out right here about how to come to him and what he will do for the person who does that. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement and the blessings of knowing the God of heaven and knowing that those who are seekers of you, who desire to fellowship with you, you will come and meet with them. You'll fellowship in the spirit with them. And I thank you, Father, for that which you have done for me personally. And oh, how I pray and wish that everybody could experience that. In Jesus' name.